0: Take our Bibles now and open them to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. If you please open now to Ephesians, chapter 2. Last week we started in this second chapter, and this chapter actually begins with some very sobering news. I mean, the very foundation of all the reasons why we need a Savior is found in these first three verses of the chapter. Now, if we could say that the first chapter is the highest expression of God's love, His mercy, and His grace, then we could look at this second chapter really as being the worst expression of our inability, of our weakness, and our depravity as God's creatures. And most people really don't have an idea of who they are or what they are. We we really, most of us, when we look at our lives and think about ourselves, we think that we're pretty good people, but the Bible teaches us that the best of humanity, the best people on the earth are nothing more but totally lost, totally depraved, and totally unable to do righteous acts. And so if you want to know what condition your condition is in, the thing to do is to read these first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2. Well, I believe, and I stated this last week, that, that Paul wrote uh, this chapter, in particular these first three verses, to show us that we have no hope without the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no way that we can uh, look to ourselves. There's nothing in us. Uh, We are nothing without God. And as he writes these verses, he, he puts us right down in the dust. But we praise the Lord that Paul does not intend to leave us here. Because he gets through with these first three verses. Then he goes on to verse number four. And we read there the words, but God. And that's where God changes everything. Where God turns around this sinful, dead condition that we're in. And makes us come to the place where we're able to be uh, saved and have, have fellowship with God. But we're going to look at these first three verses of chapter 2 once again. I'm going to preach part 2 of the message that I began last week. I just dropped in to see what condition my condition was in. So let's stand for the reading of God's Word, and we'll begin tonight in chapter 2, verse number 1. Uh, Ephesians 2, verse number 1, which says, "...and you hath he quickened, who were dead, in trespasses and sin." Wherein, in time past, ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and what solemn words these are to read And Lord, we just look at our condition, and we must realize that there's no hope for us. There's nothing we can do, and we must trust you completely to take care of all things for us. So we look to you tonight, Lord. Help us to learn something from this lesson, and we'll give you the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. What condition is our condition in? I started the message out last week with... uh, This first observation, and I've put these in the past tense because, as I said last week, I believe pretty much all of us here tonight are saved. But I want to talk about this in the past tense to talk about what we were before we came to know Jesus Christ. What condition were we in? And the first thing that Paul states in these verses is this, that we were dead, or you were dead, in sins. That's where we were. We were dead in our sins. And the problem for all of us is we are in or were in spiritual death. And the Bible does not say that we were sick. It doesn't say that we weren't healthy, and it doesn't say that we weren't weak and we weren't dead. The Bible said, or that we weren't, uh, or that we were dead. I mean, this is this is a very plain statement of Paul when he says that uh, this is your condition. And about as plain as Paul can make it is that he says that you are dead. And when you are spiritually dead, that means that you have uh, no movements toward God. Towards God, that means that you are unable spiritually to do anything. And just like a physically dead body is totally inanimate, so a person who's dead in their trespasses and sin without knowing Jesus Christ has absolutely no spiritual activity. And so that means that a person without Christ cannot do righteous acts, that person cannot pray spiritual prayers, he cannot live a godly life, and worse than all of those things is this fact... That a person who's dead in trespasses and sin cannot repent of their sins and to believe in Christ. And you can't do any of those things because the Bible says that you are dead. And unless this situation is remedied, unless something turns around here and changes, you will remain forever dead. I mean, none of us knows any person who is ever able to bring themselves back to life after they have died. And none of us actually knows any person that was able to bring themselves to spiritual life. It's an impossibility. And before a person could ever come to spiritual life and actually come to the place that he can place his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior, he has to have the supernatural working of the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit that calls us To life, in order that we might believe. And folks, if we understand that point, then we won't have any problem understanding why chapter 1 in Ephesians is true. We won't have any problem believing in God's election. And we won't uh, have problems thinking about God's predestination because we understand that it's only the acts and the will of God that can bring us to life in order that we might believe in Christ and that God works only on those whom He wills. That's God's sovereign prerogative. And folks, I really do believe that this is something that uh, preachers and churches need to be talking about today because there is mass confusion out there in the world when these things aren't preached. One uh, good Baptist preacher, an old Baptist preacher I know from Kentucky, made this statement. He said, I would suggest to you that almost every message in the world is proclaimed except the biblical message about man's sinful nature and man's inherent spiritual depravity and man's spiritually dead condition before God. And that is the condition that our condition is in. You were dead in your sins. And that's the first thing that we have to recognize. All of us were dead in sin. Now let's move on to another part of the message tonight. I don't want to take up the second observation. And that is that you were disobedient in sin. The next part of this that Paul presents in the passage is our outright disobedience to God. And of course, our sins are our disobedience to God. Now, look at verses 2 and 3 again. It says, Wherein in time past, Ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation. And, of course, conversation there means our manner of life. Among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So what is the thing that has brought spiritual death ...upon all of mankind. Well, it is this thing of disobedience. We go all the way back to the very beginning... ...when God put Adam in the utopia of the Garden of Eden... ...and he gave Adam everything that a man could ever desire... ...everything that he needed was there. Adam was put into a perfect environment... And it was Adam's disobedience that brought sin and spiritual death upon all men. And the lie of Satan, as we all remember, was, If you eat of this fruit, you shall not surely die. But that was as false as false could be. Because at the very moment that Adam partook of that forbidden fruit, he began to die physically. But worse than that, immediately he was plunged into instant spiritual death. And the Bible tells us that because of that, spiritual death has passed upon all men. It came from Adam, and now every person is disobedient as Adam was also disobedient. Now, Adam had only one way to escape his spiritual death, and that was for God to bring him back to life. And there's only one way that any of us can overcome our spiritual disobedience to God, and that is that God should bring us back to life. Now, I'm sure that many of you, if you've done much studying of the Bible, much reading, you understand that there are people who do not like this doctrine and they think that this is unfair. And so they'll say, why do we have to suffer for Adam's disobedience? And why is it that God counts me a sinner because of what Adam did? Well, I would say to you, first of all, that there's no one here and no one anywhere who has to pay for Adam's sin. We did not sin, Adam sinned, and so God is not holding us accountable for the sin that Adam committed. But we do need to understand this, and that is that none of us is any better than Adam. And, And had we been in Adam's shoes, we would have done exactly what Adam did. You see, God is God, and God has the ability to do this. He has the ability to try the whole human race in Adam. And if we were given the very same choices that Adam had, and we have been placed in the garden where Adam was, then we would have done the very same thing that Adam did. And so what God has done is to try the whole human race in Adam. Now, I want you to consider this. Adam had a perfect environment. And there was none of God's creation that had been tainted with sin, except Satan and the fallen angels. Everything else was perfect in this environment. And yet, Adam sinned. And folks, people are seriously deluding themselves if they believe that now with this whole world that's been affected by sin and by the fall of Adam, that now they can keep from sinning. Now, if you wonder, why is it that we are condemned? It's not because Adam sinned. I mean, Adam only committed one sin. You and I have committed multitudes of sins, so much that the Bible says that our hearts are evil only continually. So all of us are disobedience. Our condition is one of disobedience. Now, let me point out to you three influences that we have in the world uh, that, that regarding this disobedience because Paul talks about three spheres of influence upon every person. And the first one is this. The world influences us. The world influences us. He says, Wherein in time past ye walked... According to the course of this world. So our condition is one of conformity to the world. And if you read over in Romans chapter 12. Uh, Paul states there that we should not be condemned to the, uh, uh, conformed to the world. But Paul knows that even though we shouldn't be. That's exactly where we are. Now people like to talk about their independence today. And a person likes to talk about how uh, I'm my own man. Or I'm my own woman. And nobody's going to tell me what to do. I am strictly independent. But that is just as phony as it could possibly be. I mean, that's nothing but phony baloney because every one of us is influenced by the world. All that you have to do to prove it is to look at the clothes that you have on tonight. Is anybody here a fashion designer? I mean, did you design the clothes that you have on? No, none of us did. Because what we wear to church even is a style. And style by definition is what everybody else does and what everybody else wants. And so we can look at our hair, we can look at our shoes, we can look at the jewelry that we wear, the type of house that we live in, the kind of car that we drive. And every part of that is determined by what everybody else wants and what everybody does. And you even look at these kids today who try to be different and they put on these, they have these punk hairstyles and they pierce everything on their body that can be pierced and wear the tattoos and they stick studs all over their body. Well, they think that they're rebels, they think they're loners and and they're doing this because they don't want to look like the establishment. But you know all that that is? What they've decided to do is accept somebody's style. It's an alternative style, but somebody said, if, that's, if you don't want to look like the establishment, then you need to look like this. And so it doesn't matter who you are. All of us are under the world's influence, and none of us are independent from it. Now, the same thing is true of every person spiritually. Our minds are conditioned to think like the world, and the opinions that we have are the opinions of the world. But that's not so of a Christian, because a Christian is something else. A Christian, when you, when you trust in the Lord, you become otherworldly. This is what Jesus said to the unbelievers in John eight twenty three. He said, ye are from beneath, I am from above. Ye are of this world, I am not of this world. And then he talked about his followers in John seventeen fourteen, And he says, I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them. Because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And so every person who's not a believer is influenced and they are controlled by the world. And whether it's consciously or unconsciously, there is no escaping the the world's pull on every single person. So nobody's independent, no matter how independent that they think that they are. So that's just another part of our condition. And as long as we are in this condition of having the world's influence upon us then we will always remain in disobedience. And the only way that we can come out of that disobedience is by the new birth. It's becoming a new creature in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the second thing that Paul says influences us is that Satan influences us. He says, According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Well, who is he talking about? Who is the prince and the power of the air? Well, this is the very same one that Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, where he calls him the God of this world. And, of course, the God of this world is Satan. And Satan is a very powerful creature. He's not as powerful as God. He's not as strong as God. He's not omnipresent like God is omnipresent. He's not powerful as powerful as God is. But he, he is... He has this this control throughout the world and he has myriads and multitudes of evil angels who help him to work on the hearts and the minds of men. Now, just how powerful is Satan? Well, he's powerful enough that in the book of Jude, the Bible says that the archangel Michael would not bring against him a railing accusation. Now, that doesn't mean that Michael the archangel didn't have any power against him, but what it does mean is that his power is controlled and limited by Jesus Christ. And one of these days, Jesus Christ it will be the one who gives him his due. Christ is the one who will deal with him. Now that shows us that if Michael the archangel could not exercise any power against Satan, then certainly we can't. We don't have any strength against Satan. He's the father of disobedience, the word of God says. He works in this world and he works in the children of disobedience. And of course, it was Satan who introduced a sin into this universe. And so in Ephesians chapter 6, <coughs> excuse me, we're told, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And so we are powerless against those kinds of forces by ourselves. And so... What this does is just add one more nail into the coffin of this total inability that we have apart from Christ. Now, it's amazing to me that anyone could then think that one day a person can just decide that they want to follow God. I mean, as if we have the power that we can come out from under all of these influences and we can just decide that we want to follow God. Now the powers of evil are against us and they're working hard against us and we can't overcome them. And Paul brings that out again and again and again to show us just how hopeless that we really are. So we wonder why is it that people would preach that salvation is in your hands, salvation is your, descript- your, your uh, decision when the scriptures are so very clear about this and they are careful to point out to us that we are dead and we're always disobedient. So what makes us think that we are actually able to change ourselves? But this is exactly what a person says when he begins to preach that, oh, you have a seed of faith in you, and every person has a chance to be saved. But folks, chance would not do a person any good when he's hopelessly dead, number one, and then also when he's influenced by the world and also influenced by the power of Satan. Chances would not do you any good. But Paul's not through with this yet because he has something else to tell us that drives us even further down. There's more that influences us besides just the world and the devil because there is a third influence and this is probably the most damaging of all and that is that the flesh influences us. Verse number 3 says, "...among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others." And so our flesh is also a negative influence. Now, this is a really powerful force because what he's talking about here is not the body. He's not talking about the fleshly body. He's actually speaking about our nature. And our nature is disobedient against God. And when we are without God, we don't have anything but this sinful, fleshly nature. And we're all influenced by that nature. And there's no creature that acts outside of his nature. And so what man does, he acts according to this disobedient nature that's in him. Now Satan is sinful and Satan is disobedient. And Satan never acts outside of his nature. Now, he's always against God, and he always will be against God, and he won't change. Now, one thing that God has not done, he has not provided any salvation for Satan and the evil angels. And so they will continue just as they are in the state that they're in, and they will never change what they do. They will always have that nature. And one of these days, they'll be thrown into the lake of fire because they can't change their nature. God also has a nature, and it's God's nature always to be holy and just and righteous. And if there's anything that God can't do, God cannot act against His nature. He can't act any differently than His nature. And so God could never become sinful because then he couldn't possibly be God. So God also does not work against his nature. Now you tell me then, how is it possible that if Satan is so powerful, such a powerful being that he can't do anything against his nature, and that God is the supreme power of all of the universe, and God can't act against his nature, then how is it possible that anyone could believe That puny little old man could somehow do something different than his nature. I mean, that's an impossible thing. And yet, there are Baptists all across the country that are preaching and teaching that very thing. They've joined the ranks of apostate religions that teach that a person actually has the ability to change their nature, that they can act outside of their nature, and all that they need to do is just choose to do so. And so there we go again. That's why we say that that Christ has... Made salvation possible. I mean, we can't use those kinds of terms. And we can't say that God has given people a chance to be saved. Because possibility salvation and chance salvation are nothing but tricks of the devil. Now, Paul is not teaching either of those. He speaks about unconditional election before the foundation of the world. And this is why he talks about particular redemption that's limited to those who are elected. And this is why he has to speak about irresistible grace when God calls the elect to salvation. And why does he talk about those things? Because there is no other possibility that a person could be saved without them. It can't happen without those things. I mean, we are influenced by the world. We're influenced by Satan. We're influenced by our flesh. And our nature will not permit us to do anything outside of our depravity. And so we are children of disobedience. That's our life, that's our way, that's our nature. And we will never be anything else unless God changes that nature. Now, Jeremiah speaks about the difficulty of man doing anything against his nature. And he writes in Jeremiah 13, verse 23, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then may ye also do good that are accustomed to do evil. Now, then may ye also do good who are accustomed to do evil. And that is a statement of impossibility. So let me ask you something. What good can you do? Is faith in God a good thing? Then how could you have faith in God? Is repenting of your sins, is that a good thing? Well, how could you repent of your sins? Is trusting in Christ a good thing for a person to do? Well, how is it possible for you to trust in Christ? You see, you can no sooner do those things than, as Jeremiah puts it here, no sooner could a black man become a white man. With maybe the possible exception of Michael Jackson, but nobody else can. And it's the same thing. I mean, uh, a leopard cannot become a lion. That's an impossible thing. It can't be done. So it takes the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit... And God's spirit works on whom he will. Now that brings me to the next part of our condition. We're dead in sins. We're disobedient in sins. And thirdly, we were depraved in sins. And this is what Paul means when he says we fulfill the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of our mind. And we sin because our appetites are sinful. In other words, we just don't have any desire for God. Now can you see we have another problem here? Why is it that people would not come to Christ and why can't they come to Christ? Because there is no person who has a desire for God. I mean, we're all in this condition. And that's really not something we can argue about because the scriptures are very clear about this. In Romans chapter 3, Paul writes, There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. And you can go on and read those following verses and Paul nails it down. He keeps putting the nails in the coffin of our true condition. We just don't have any desire for God. Now I want you to understand that word depravity. And what do we mean when we say a person is totally depraved? Well, that doesn't mean that people can't do good things. Because certainly folks do do good things. People give to charities. There are those who help those that are impoverished We have times when there are disaster relief after calamity. And so certainly people can do good things. But total depravity shows us that we cannot do anything that accumulates to righteousness. There is not one thing that we can do to merit the righteousness of God. And we cannot meet God's criteria for salvation. We cannot meet God's holiness. Now I want to show you four ways that man is depraved. And each of these keeps putting our dead spiritual man further and further and further down into that grave. And it makes it impossible for us to climb out. First of all, we are depraved by birth. And there are two passages in the Psalms that speak about this. In Psalm 51 verse 5 and Psalm 58 verse 3. It says, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Then in Psalm 58, verse 3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. Now, when you're born, you come out with this wet, nasty fluid all over you. But you know something worse than that? When you are born, you come out with a nasty sin nature. And you get that sin nature from your father. And he got it from his father, who got it from his father, who got it from his father. And so it goes all the way back to Adam. It's all traceable back to Adam. And this is what Paul says in Romans 5, verse number 12. Wherefore, as by one man man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And that's a clear statement by Paul. And yet this is another statement that people argue against. And there are plenty of people who believe that we are not born with a sin nature. And they think that that if we could just take a child and put that child into a perfect environment, that he would remain to be perfect. He would be all right. But here's what would happen if you took a child and put him into a perfect environment. Very soon, it would be imperfect. And that's because he's a sinner. And he has this sin nature. He's born with this sin nature. And he would sin at the very first opportunity. Now people think that we sin and then we become sinners. But that's not what the Bible teaches. We sin because we are already sinners by birth. We're born with a sin nature and that's why we sin. And so Paul says in verse number 3 of our text, We were by nature the children of wrath. You know, lots of times we'll talk about innocent little babies... And, oh, you know, babies are sweet. There's no doubt about that. But the truth of the matter is, there are no innocent little babies. And do you know that a baby could no more go to heaven than an adult unless something had been done with his sin nature? Now, I'm not going to go into that subject tonight because it's, it's a big subject. But what that has done is to lead all, to all kinds of heresies like infant baptism where they want to baptize babies to wash away the sin nature. Well, of course, that can't be done. I'm not going to argue that point tonight, but let me just say that we are all born with a depraved sin nature. Now the second thing is, we are depraved in will. And here's an area that people really don't like to think about, and they've got a totally wrong idea. Because people talk about having free will. And free will, that's the sacred cow for a lot of people. And they're confused about the issue of the will. Well, the truth of the matter is, that there is no totally free will. And we can logically make the case for that because there can only be one totally free will in the universe, and that's the first cause. And the first cause is God. He can be the only one with totally free will. And that's just not me saying it. You don't have to pick up a Bible to prove that because logic will tell you there can only be one totally free will. But man does have a will. There's no question about that. And the Bible teaches that man has a will. But what does the Bible say about man's will? That's the important thing. And the Bible says that we are depraved in our will. Our will is corrupt. And so every person has the same kind of will, and our will will only head one direction. It always goes down. It goes further and further into the grave. The will of man will never lift us up. It can't do it. Well, Bradley, Jr. said it this way. We could say that Niagara Falls is free, but it's only free to go down, for that is its nature. The falls could not reverse its course and run upward, for it is the nature of water to seek a lower level. Listen to this. Man's free will cannot cure him of a toothache or mend a broken limb. And yet he vainly imagines that he can cure his soul. Can darkness create light? Can filth produce purity? Can corruption transform itself into holiness? Neither can a man, by an act of his will, save his soul. And so if you want to talk about will, then you need to understand this, that your supposed free will that you think you have, that will is corrupt. And it will never lead you anywhere but into further corruption. And so nail after nail after nail keeps going into this coffin of a spiritually dead man And as we read this, it makes chapter 1 ring truer and truer and truer all of the time. Now thirdly, we are depraved in mind. Romans chapter 8 says, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject under the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. So now we have to go back to the reason why that God must elect us, why God must redeem us, and why God must call us. And it's because our minds are depraved. And our minds are so depraved, the Bible says we cannot please God, and it goes a step further and says we are not even subject to the law of God. But what does that mean? Well, it means that Everything that we ought to do, we don't do. And everything that we ought not to do, that is the thing that we do. And that's Paul's argument in Romans chapter 7. Listen to what he says there. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will, talk about the will, for to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. So you see what he says, in my flesh dwells no good thing. And so the Bible teaches us that all of our faculties are turned against God. And so we are hopelessly depraved. Then there's a fourth part of this. We are depraved in deeds. The book of Psalms says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Do you ever think about this? What would happen... If you were allowed to go into heaven without being changed, what would happen? You know what would happen? The first thing that you would do is you would charge the throne of God and you try to thrust a spear right through God's heart. And the reason that you would do that is because every action that you have comes from an evil heart. And we can go to Bible verse after Bible verse after Bible verse to read it and prove it. Just listen to this one in Romans 1, verse 29. It says, Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, and implacable, unmerciful. Does that mean that everybody here has done all of those things? Well, of course not. We haven't done all of those things. But the capability of doing all of those things is right in our heart. And the only thing that separates any person here from a murder on death row at San Quentin is the grace of God from restraining us from doing it. That is the only thing that separates us. God keeps that from happening. Now, I've read this scripture many times. I'm not going to go to it, but I want to just tell you about it one more time. In the book of 2 Thessalonians, it tells us that during the tribulation period that God is going to remove the Holy Spirit from the world and the restraining power that God has over sin will be taken away. And when that happens, men will act out to the depths of their depravity. And so during that seven years of tribulation period, people will be doing unspeakable things. They will be committing uh, heinous crimes against God and against man. And every bad, possible, conceivable thing that you can think of, that's what men will be involved in. And the truth of the matter is that all of that is in our hearts right now. And the only thing that keeps that from coming out is because God's Holy Spirit is here restraining man from doing the most wicked things imaginable that he could do. Now, let's think about this for a minute. You you tell me how a person who has a heart like that, one who is depraved by birth, depraved in will, depraved in mind, depraved in deeds and then on top of all of that, he's dead in sins, how would he ever turn to Christ? How would he ever take a chance to be saved? He never will. And that's why we can't talk about chance salvation, because God has to do this for us. God is the one who has to do the work. And yet there are people who say, dead's not dead. Disobedient is not really all that disobedient. Depraved really doesn't mean depraved. And so they say that people are capable of trusting Christ simply because they want to. Folks, somebody needs to read and understand Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. Because that explains the impossibility of salvation coming that way. The only way that salvation comes to any person is that God comes to him first. God speaks to him first because we will never seek God. Now, I want to finish the message tonight, and we want to be ready to move on to verse 4 next week. So quickly, let me give you the last point. We are dead in sins, we are disobedient in sins, we're depraved in sins, and lastly, we were doomed in sins. Now, folks, we are doomed. And how do I know that? Because Paul writes in verse number 3 that we are children of wrath. And we are children of wrath because we're sinners, and God cannot coexist with sin. God's a just God, and he says that sin must be punished. Way back in the beginning of the book, you may remember, I preached a message on the legalities of salvation. And I told you then that salvation is a legal process as much as it is a gracious process. And of course, that doesn't mean that we're saved by the law, but it does mean that we'll be judged By the law. And because we've sinned, the Bible says that God's wrath abides on us, and sin can only be punished one way, and that is in the wrath of God. And somebody will experience that wrath. Either you will experience it yourself, or your substitute will experience it. And the only substitute that God allows is his own son, Jesus Christ. The only way that you can avoid the punishment of sin is to have Jesus take the punishment for you. Now, we ought not to ever think that we come into the judgment of God, and now God will be ready to pass out mercy. I explained this on Sunday morning, that the judgment is not a time for mercy. The judgment is a time for justice. And that's all that will be meted out then is justice. And the Bible teaches us that every lawbreaker will be punished. Now, and I don't think I need to remind any of you about the condition that we're in. And that is, all of us are lawbreakers. All of us have broken God's law, and we are condemned. Not that we will be condemned, but we are condemned already. And this is what Jesus said in John 3, 18, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed the name of the only begotten Son of God. And then John said this in John three thirty six. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. But he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abideth on him. So Jesus said this. Paul said it. John said it. We're doomed in our sins. Now let me finish with our last statement on the listening sheet. And our last statement is, We can never understand the love of God unless we understand the wrath of God. You see, folks, we can never get down here to verse number 4... Until we understand verses 1 through 3. And it's not until we understand how really bad our condition is. That we can understand how badly that we actually need the love and the mercy and the grace of God. And so it's not until we understand where we are and where we come from. That we're ready to be saved. And a person who understands verses 1 through 3 in Ephesians chapter 2. Would never come to the conclusion that I can help myself. That I can do something to be saved. You would never come to the conclusion after reading those verses that salvation is merely a flight of fancy. It's merely a whim. And you can decide to become a Christian any time that you want. It's only when you know truly what condition your condition is in that you're ready to be saved. Now, do you know what we're conditioned to say? We're conditioned to say to people, Smile. God loves you. God has a wonderful plan for your life. And you know what people hear when you say that? When you say, smile, God loves you, you know what people hear? They hear, God will accept me just the way that I am. But the Bible teaches there's not one good thing in me and not one good thing in you for God to love. Not a single thing. And there's no reason why God would ever want us. It's only His mercy. And the fact that He loved us for no reason that we can be saved. You know, I preached on John 3.16, and you remember, perhaps, that I read the verse like this. We personalized it. And I said, for God so loved the world, or God so loved Mark Smith, that he gave his only begotten son, that if Mark Smith would believe in him, that Mark Smith would not perish, but Mark Smith would have everlasting life. And that's a great thing, isn't it not able To be able to personalize John 3.16, and everybody here tonight, you can personalize John 3.16. But you know something people do not want to do? They don't want to personalize Romans chapter 3. Now let's do that for just a minute. Let's personalize Romans chapter 3. And here's what Romans 3 would say. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not Mark. Mark does not understand. Mark does not seek after God. Mark has gone out of the way. Mark has become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not Mark. Mark's throat is an open sepulcher. With Mark's tongue, he has used a seat. The poison of asp is under Mark's lips. Mark's mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Mark's feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in Mark's ways. And the way of peace, Mark has not known. There is no fear of God before Mark's eyes. Now, folks, every one of us tonight needs to personalize Romans chapter 3 as well as personalizing John three sixteen. And when you see that, then you know what condition your condition is in. And that's when you'll be ready to turn to Jesus Christ as the only hope of salvation. And that's what all people need to hear. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, another opportunity to preach your word. We thank you, Lord, for what you revealed to us. And I just pray, Lord, that all of us would see what we were, how wicked and depraved we truly are. We tend so much to think that we're good people and We do good things, but the Bible shows us that's impossible. We don't. And the only reason that we could ever be saved is because of the mercy, love, and grace of Almighty God. So, Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ who was willing to give himself, to give love to such creatures as we are. Bless us in this invitation tonight. Lord, help us to give this message to others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.